Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Krupenia. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Johns Hopkins University in the US. He is interested in the cognitive abilities of humans and other species, especially those involved in navigating the social world. And today we're going to talk about that and very much so about theory of mind, for example. So Dr. Krupenia, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So let's start uh, in a place where I usually like to start since we're going to talk about theory of mind. Could you give us a definition of it? Sure. So theory of mind is sort of an abstract concept, but it refers to the capacity that humans have to think about what others are thinking, to make inferences about um, the content of others' minds. So as humans, we might, for example, see someone reaching but we don't necessarily only encode that as just a behavior reaching, right? But we might actually think, okay, this person is reaching for um, their keys because they want them or they desire them. So theory of mind is our ability to think about the mental states, like the goals and beliefs that guide others' actions. So to go sort of deeper than the surface and um, identify the kind of mental causes for others' behavior. Mm -hmm. And from an evolutionary perspective, what sort of functions does it serve? Yeah, so I think in everyday life, uh, we can see um, theory of mind having a number of functions, some of which might have been relevant in our evolutionary history. So typically we use theory of mind to interpret others' behavior, to predict their behavior, and also to, in some cases, manipulate others' behavior, either for deception or for um, collaboration. So yeah, the first case interpretation, it's helping us to kind of decode what others are doing. Unlike, you know, basic sort of objects, they follow really simple principles, right? Like if you drop something, it falls. Um, you, it doesn't pass through other solid objects, but humans um, are a little bit less predictable. So theory of mind is allowing us to interpret their behavior. If somebody um, screams, it's probably because they're afraid of something and there might be, we can infer as well that there's something scary nearby that we should attend to. So it allows us to interpret behavior, but um, also if we know some of those parameters, um, we might be able to predict the scream if we know that there's something scary and the person is not aware of it yet. Um, and then finally, uh, theory of mind allows us to alter others' behavior, either for deception, maybe we know that they're not aware of um, the hiding place of, the, of a desirable object. Like your brother doesn't know that the cookies are in the cabinet. So you're not gonna tell him and you're gonna wait till he's out of the room and can't see you before you eat them. Or um, in cooperative contexts, it helps us to coordinate with others. We might be able to remedy their ignorance when we're uh, like playing sports or building a house together or whatever. We might be able to tell them, you know, um, there's a tool over there that they need that they can't see or um, the ball's coming their way or something like that. So it serves primarily social functions, correct? Yeah, 
theory of mind is really seen as, I mean, there might be some sort of foundations of it that are not entirely social, but this uh, cognitive ability is really seen as playing a role in helping us to navigate the social world. Just to, you know, the social world is a lot more chaotic than the physical world, as we said. Everybody has their own goals, their own knowledge, their own beliefs, acting independently and sometimes in concert with one another. And theory of mind is allowing us to kind of get a handle on um, that social world, make it a little more predictable. So we should only expect to find it in social species? Is that it? Or, for example, because I was just thinking now that it would also make sense for animals to have this capacity when they are predators, for example. Right. Yeah. So I guess when I would say social, I'm also considering that kind of, uh, it's true. Uh, I guess typically in animal behavior, when we're saying social, we, we mean interacting with members of our own species, our conspecifics. Mm -hmm. But um, but I guess theory of mind is really particularly useful for interacting with any kinds of agents, right? So agents might be they're the things that are acting on the world. So they could be members of our own species or they could be other species of animals, um, for example. And so predator-prey interactions are a case where um, if a species had theory of mind, then we would imagine that it would really aid them in their pursuit of, of prey or in avoiding predators by being able to take advantage of, um, you know, sort of tracking their predators, tracking of them uh, to some extent. Mm -hmm. Psychologically speaking, is a theory of mind a single cognitive mechanism or is it sort of a collection of cognitive mechanisms? Yeah, this is uh, this is sort of a challenging thing to grasp um, or to to um, sort of precisely clarify. But often we study theory of mind as kind of one unitary mechanism. But actually, um, you know, everything we know suggests that it's subserved by a lot of different capacities, and probably it's sort of this kind of constellation of mechanisms that are at play. So we know, for example, that in humans, in human development, um, theory of mind seems to be linked to like executive function, like cognitive control. So um, our ability to kind of um, uh, capacities related to sort of self-control or intentional action um, and planning those sorts of things and uh, as well other capacities like memory too. So we know that some sort of um, uh, sort of fundamental capacities play a role, but then even in the sort of the more social uh, aspects of theory of mind, um, you know, there are likely a lot of other sort of relevant um, capacities related to our ability to identify agents, um, to uh, process different sorts of social cues, um, to um, identify the causes of um, events, including social events and whatnot. So, very likely there's a whole constellation of, of capacities that are involved in producing our theory of mind. So would the best way of thinking about it be as a sort of uh, psychological capacity that includes or under which fall several different cognitive mechanisms? Uh, I think so, yeah. And, um, you know, there are probably some sort of, there's a variety of 
precursors that are really mm -hmm. fundamental to a human-like theory of mind, um, mm -hmm. some of which are sort of distinctly social and some of which are not necessarily entirely social, as I mentioned, these kind of memory and executive function capacities as well um, that sort of build up um, to our human-like theory of mind. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, across different species, it could vary in degree, but also in kind, perhaps. I mean, in the sense that some species would have some cognitive capacities that are associated with theory of mind and others don't. Yeah, exactly. So, I think when we look at primates, for example, um, people are particularly interested in, in, in studying primates because they are very closest relatives. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if we know, for example, that all of the great apes, including humans, possess a certain capacity, then the, the sort of common and uh, most plausible inference is that their common ancestor that lived um, millions of years ago also possessed that capacity. And if we sort of look at a broader phylogenetic array of primates, um, we might be able to sort of target, triangulate and target sort of deeper, um, uh, deeper common ancestors. And so when you look across primates, our most distant relative, they seem to have kind of the most limited capacities in terms of theory of mind. They're sort of sensitive to very coarse aspects of um, social cues, like they, um, in a competitive context, they might avoid um, approaching the front of a person um, and instead approach their back. But it doesn't seem like they are kind of inferring um, more specific or richer, um, uh, a richer sense of, of that person's mind. It's just possibly that they're avoiding these really obvious social cues. But as we get sort of closer to humans um, and potentially reconstructing um, more recent common ancestors, then the picture builds that um, animals, our, our closer relatives seem to have sort of increasingly complex um, ability to interact with others' uh, perspectives and, and the cues that, um, that we use to infer others' perspectives. By the way, talking about non-human animals and primates in particular, how do you study theory of mind in them? Yeah, this is a big challenge, right? So in humans, a lot of our research involves asking questions. We can talk, right? So that's probably the most direct uh, access that you can have to someone else's mind. Of course, there are challenges even in uh, verbal reporting of what people think, but uh but understanding um the minds of any kind of creature that cannot speak uh presents an entirely different challenge so we have to find new ways to ask them questions um, and have them sort of tell us what they think without actually verbally telling us so there are a variety of different kinds of paradigms that people have used over the years um and I would say some of the big breakthroughs came, um, in, especially in comparative cognition, they came sort of toward the end of the 90s and into, and especially in the early 2000s, um, where I guess across the suite of paradigms that exist, typically what someone wants to measure is can an animal or let's say even a human infant or child um, 
predict what um, someone is going to do. And the kind of idea is that if this person or animal has theory of mind, then they should be able to generate um, an efficient prediction about somebody else's behavior, given certain information about that individual's mental states. So um, classic tasks with children, for example, um, one that's now famous is called the Sally Ann task. So what happens is um, children are shown two characters, two dolls, Sally and Ann, and the story goes something like this. Um, Sally has a ball. Look at Sally's ball. Sally puts her ball in the basket, and then Sally goes out to play. And Anne, sneaky Anne, she takes the ball from the basket, and she puts it in the box, and then she goes out to play. And then uh, children are asked, when Sally comes back to look for her ball, where is she going to search for it? And so the idea is, if children understand that Sally believes that her ball is still in the basket where she left it and where she last saw it, then they should uh, predict that that's where she will search for it. So in children, we use these kinds of verbal predictions as an indicator that the child has followed the story and made the correct inferences about the character's mind. And so um, in comparative cognition, when we're trying to study animals or in developmental psychology, when we're studying babies, the, um, we're generally looking for evidence that animals have kind of made the correct prediction. Um, or been able to exploit this kind of mental state of ignorance or a false belief in that case. Um, and so some of the earliest breakthroughs um, put primates like chimpanzees or monkeys like um, primates like chimpanzees or macaques um, in competitive contexts where they had to kind of anticipate what somebody else was going to do and um, exploit that information for their own gain. So um, Brian Hare and others, and uh, Lori Santos, Jonathan Blumbaum, they created these kind of contexts where um, in Brian Hare's work, for example, there are two chimpanzees, um, they compete over food, everybody wants the food, um, and typically the dominant individual is just going to get it if there's a competition. So the subordinate individual needs to be tactful. They need to kind of keep track of um, the dominance uh, behavior and potentially mental states if they wanna successfully compete with them. So they sort of created these kinds of um, contexts where you have two chimpanzees that can enter a room together and seek food that's in the middle of the room. And they were able to manipulate the dominance perspective in different ways. So. Uh, maybe the food is hidden and the subordinate knows where it is, but the dominant doesn't know where it is. Or maybe there's one piece of food that the dominant can see um, and therefore should be aware of and should target. And there's another piece of food that the dominant cannot see um, and is ignorant to. And they created all these different sorts of manipulations. And what they would do was let the subordinate into the room sort of a fraction of a second early to see what decision they would make. What kind of, would they approach the food and which food would they target? Um, presumably anticipating, uh, predicting that, you know, the dominant was going to go for one piece of food or another and this other piece of food might be safe. And so those, 
those studies sort of reliably show that the chimpanzees seem to exploit information about the other's perspective. So they would preferentially seek food that the dominant hadn't seen or couldn't see, um, providing some evidence that they might be able to actually track what others can see or um, what others know. And so these sort of interactive tasks were um, able to make a big splash and a breakthrough sort of showing that animals um, are sensitive to some of the factors that that um, are involved in theory of mind. Um, and in particular, that if you find a context that gets them motivated to demonstrate that capacity, um, then you have the best chance of, of being able to uh, reliably show those kinds of abilities. Mm -hmm. When it comes to these studies done in the lab, don't we have to be careful in terms of extrapolating from them to how the animals would behave in the wild, at least to some extent? Yeah, this is uh, another great question. So I think it depends what your question is. Um, mm -hmm. Some of us, the primary question is sort of what are the evolutionary origins of this capacity, right? And in that sense, you could be working with a chimpanzee or bonobo that is trained to communicate with lexigrams or sign language or whatever. They might have a super enriched developmental environment. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, if they can show a capacity, then we can at least say that this is sort of within the cognitive potential of the species and therefore potentially, um, you know, if we're triangulating and we're trying to infer the, the capacities of our common ancestor, we might, we could say that it's possible then that the common ancestor all also had this cognitive potential. Then of course, you need to kind of isolate the developmental environment that's responsible for it to know kind of how widely um, are these uh, behaviors or uh, cognitive abilities emerging within the species. Um, but at least you can say it's sort of within the biological potential of the species. But then I think um, it is true that animals living in captivity, they have a very different experience. And sometimes that helps us um, because sometimes we do experiments where they're interacting with a human um, and they need to apply whatever theory of mind they have to humans. And this is probably only a study, these kinds of studies only work because their captive animals are familiar with humans. They're mm -hmm. um, interacting with keepers on a daily basis. So that kind of element um, you know, you, you wouldn't directly translate those that sort of experiment into the wild, but um, but uh, we also have sort of a handful of studies that have been done in more naturalistic environments, um, and I guess in general, what you see so in cap captive experiments, whether animals have to primates have to interact with a human or with a member of their own species. Um, we're finding kind of consistent patterns of results. And there are also some experiments that have been done in the wild that kind of, that again, sort of, um, that have, again, consistent patterns of results as well. So they're mm -hmm. collectively building a picture that there are some sort of fundamental social capacities that are expressed um, under different developmental environments. Um, and in general, I would say, particularly if we're thinking about, um, you know, like this this design I told you earlier by Brian Herring colleagues, where the animals have to compete with one another. This is 
an idea that that those researchers had because they observe chimps in captivity and they know about chimps in the wild and they know that competition is a really important part of their life. They compete for access to food, mating opportunities, um, and to ultimately sort of become uh, ascend the dominance hierarchy in order to maintain access to these various resources. So competition is sort of fundamental to their social life, whether they're in captivity or the wild. And so if we're sort of tapping into social cognition in those kinds of contexts, I think we also have sort of reason to assume, unless there's strong evidence otherwise, that these same capacities might also be operating in the wild. Mm -hmm. Yes, I wanted to ask you that question. I mean, I was not exactly questioning the sort of ecological validity of these studies done in the lab. It was nothing like that. I was just sure. try, trying to understand, I mean, to what extent we could extrapolate from them to how the animal would behave and how his psychology, his or her psychology would work in the wild. And also, on the other hand, I mean, if in the lab or in captivity we get results that are somewhat different from the ones we get in the wild, then that could also tell us that perhaps um, doing studies in the lab is also an important thing because it tells us something about the, as you said, the cognitive potential of the, of the animal. I mean, I mean, sometimes perhaps in the wild, uh, the circumstances are a little bit more limiting, perhaps if they are exposed to some more, uh, I don't know, richer environmental inputs, they can mm -hmm. show bigger potential. And that's also part then of their behavioral and psychological repertoire, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, captivity has a few um, benefits in terms of uh, studying these sorts of animals. And we study them in zoos and sanctuaries, places where um, they're already there um, for various like educational and conservation reasons. Um, uh, and in captivity, on the one hand, you have a lot more experimental control. So we do yeah. things like um, eye tracking, which we can talk about later. And we use a lot of um, technical approaches that aren't really feasible in natural conditions. But as you're saying, it also allows us to understand um, and, and um, sort of clarify uh, these sort of different capacities in different mm -hmm. contexts. So even within, even across different captive sites, you might have um, chimpanzees that are sort of, as I mentioned earlier, or bonobos like Kanzi that are trained um, to use lexigrams. They can kind of communicate in richer ways um, by sort of pointing to different symbols that have different meanings. Um, you can study those kinds of populations in comparison to typically sort of zoo housed um, um, animals and depending on the method, maybe even directly in, in, in comparison to the wild and try to understand which aspects of the social environment and the physical environment might um, shape cognitive development across uh, different species. But I, I tend to think that if we're using a sort of naturalistic paradigm that seems to tap into the normal social life that you would see in captivity or the wild, then my running assumption is that the kind of effects that we can, the kind of capacities we can document in the in captive environments are likely to be um, also 
being used in the wild too. Um, unless, again, unless we have reason to believe otherwise. Um, but yeah, sometimes we do find differences and that's really illuminating as well. Mm -hmm. And perhaps also, and correct me if I'm wrong on this point, but I guess that if we find differences in captivity, that could also point toward a particular capacity in a particular animal being more flexible than we thought. Right. That's right. Yeah, I think, you know, the sort of first step is trying to figure out to what extent do different species have different capacities at all. But to really precisely understand them, then we need to kind of isolate different, you know, isolate those mechanisms further, including the developmental mechanisms and trying mm -hmm. to understand kind of, um, you know, whether a certain behavior or um, cognitive abilities um, entirely innate and sort of invariably emerges um, along a particular developmental time scale, regardless of um, the types of interactions or experiences that the animal has, um, or if there's sort of certain developmental environments or certain experiences that kind of catalyze the development or um, uh, the emergence or even just kind of the um, the extent of an ability, maybe maybe a capacity sort of emerges reliably across individuals, but some individuals become sort of better at deploying it than others because of their different experiences that they've had. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, because also perhaps how some of these psychological mechanisms work and develop uh, is much more complex and richer than terms like innate or instinct or fixed action right. pattern would tell us, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think with these kinds of really rich um, capacities, we know, for example, um, in humans that, um, you know, there's, there's various studies kind of looking at individual differences and trying to figure out, you know, do uh, children with different kinds of experiences uh, show strengths um, earlier or um, sort of better performance on tasks. And there do seem to be some kind of experiences. Like if your parents talk to you a lot about mental states, like, um, you know, they describe people, other people as having goals, as having knowledge, as having seen things, um, then you're also going to sort of more quickly have a handle on those concepts and be able to use them better to predict others' behavior. Mm -hmm. So we digressed a little bit here, but I think it was a very important digression to clarify all of these aspects of studying animal behavior and psychology. But going back to theory of mind, so can we say that non-human primates also have it? And I mean, uh, would in this case, in this case, would it be a difference in degree or not? Mm. Yeah, this is a great question. Um, and again, it's another challenging one, I would say. Um, we can say that some non-human animals, including primates, but also uh, corvids, so like mm -hmm. crows and jays, re relatively distant relatives of humans, um, and perhaps some other species as well, they seem to at least have really rich precursors of theory of mind. So they have some kind of foundations that are definitely fundamental to theory of mind. There's some sort of debates among different scientists and um, 
various philosophers about exactly the evidence that you need to say unequivocally, this is definitely theory of mind. They're definitely sort of imagining others' perspectives in really rich ways. Um, or, or even sort of deploying more sort of foundational uh, abilities to track others' uh, uh, mental states. But um, we can say, I think, with, with great confidence that they at least have sort of rich precursors to um, understand and predict others' behavior. Mm -hmm. By the way, the theory of mind also includes a concept of the self, right? This is at least a related concept, yeah. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, theory of mind is really this ability to track mental states, like mm -hmm. beliefs, like knowledge, like goals or desires, and um, other agents have those mental states, but we have them too, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's a concept called metacognition, which is about sort of our um, ability to kind of track our own uh, cognition, including our own mental states. And it's sort of seen as potentially closely related to um, theory of mind that we might use similar uh, related mechanisms to uh, track our own mental states as well as those of others. And uh, but this sort of self other distinction is then potentially relevant as well. Um, yeah, uh, kind of, yeah, yeah, I asked you specifically about that because it came to my mind the, um, the mirror test that mm -hmm. has been done with, uh, of course, human infants, but also other primates. And I'm not sure, I don't remember exactly if other primates pass this test or not. Yeah, they do. So this mirror test that you're referring to, it's sort of one of the kind of first ways um, and, and still most um, popular ways to try and determine whether an animal has a concept of uh, a sort of self-awareness, whether mm -hmm. they can recognize themselves distinctly from others. And so what they do is they uh, present a chimpanzee, for example, with a mirror, and they have a chance to kind of interact with it. And a lot of animals respond first to their uh, mirror image as as though it was another individual. So they might um, be aggressive yeah. or be a bit frightened or something like that. But after time, they sort of get used to it. And increasingly, you see in some species like um, chimpanzees that they seem to interact with it in ways that seem to uh, imply that they understand um, they understand that this is themselves. So for example, with chimpanzees, once they, if you give them these little pocket mirrors, you might find them going, you know, and looking, um, looking uh, at parts of their body that they can't otherwise see, like inside of their mouth or um, behind them. Uh, and so then they do an experiment to know, do they really seem to get this? Um, are they really understanding this image as themselves? And what they do is they put this sort of odorless mark on the, on the individual's face. Um, and then they allow them to, they, they uh, return them to the mirror again. Um, and what you see with uh, chimps, for example, is that they are immediately touching this mark, which is something that they're not doing if you put the odorless mark um, on, but you don't present them with the mirror, or if you, you know, don't have the odorless mark, they're not touching that uh, yeah. spot either. So it seems like they're sort of quickly making some kind of connection between their body and the body that they can see. Um, 
And so this is kind of some of that fundamental evidence. It's hard to interpret exactly what it means in terms of a sense of self, but it does seem to suggest that they're connecting themselves with the individual in the mirror and they're able to use this mirror to explore themselves um, in ways that they never could before. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of an anecdote, but I saw a video on YouTube where they put a mirror I'm, or a mirror in the forest or whatever. I mean, in the wild and there was a silverback gorilla there and he saw himself in the mirror. But <laughs> I, I, I think that he interpreted it as being another uh, male gorilla, because I think that probably because of their social organization, one male, multi-female organization, I mean, he got really, really aggressive <laughs> because he thought yeah. it, it was another male. So, Yeah, I'm sure, because, you know, especially in the wild, animals don't have uh, exposure to mirrors. Oh, yeah, and the sure. exposure is really important for them to kind of um, be able to kind of calmly approach the mirror and get to understand that it's themselves. You can imagine, you know, gorilla males, for example, other males are kind of a major threat to them. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they have their social group, um, but uh, lone males or males from other groups sometimes might show up and try to dethrone them and fight them and sort of take away members of their group um, or take over their group. Um, and if you sort of approached a mirror and you saw another gorilla and it's this big guy, um, you know, you can imagine that might be very stressful and scary, uh, especially because the mirror is so close. So it means that this other uh, threat and this other competitor is also super close to you. So uh, I think in that case, yeah, it makes sense to respond in initially and maybe over cautiously, but to respond sort of aggressively. Um, to this kind of threat. But it's possible that with enough exposure to that mirror, um, the gorilla might have uh, calmed down and, and shown more signs of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. So uh, a specific aspect that I think is also part of theory of mind, do other apes or primates also have an understanding of false beliefs? Yeah, so this is a good question. So the kinds of studies that we talked about before, so this kind of competitive task with chimpanzees, those studies provided the first evidence that maybe chimpanzees are tracking what others can see and what they can't see um, and what others know about. So for example, being able to track that somebody has seen the cookies be put away in a particular cabinet, for example. And so you're tracking their knowledge or you might track instead that they're ignorant about that. They didn't see the food being hidden. so. Um, they don't know. Um, and these are really sort of fundamental abilities. But in humans, we can also track what you're saying, beliefs and including false beliefs. So we know, for example, that um, that um, the someone might think that the cookies are in a particular cabinet because they watch those cookies be hidden in that cabinet. Um, but you actually know that the cookies have since been moved. So the belief that they have about the world, it's no longer true, it's mm -hmm. false. Um, and in order to sort of understand that, we need to be able to kind of entertain in our minds two different models of the world. One is the reality that we know to be true, and the other is the other person's reality, which no longer is true, but it's still going to 
um, guide their actions. The person is not going to act on the basis of our knowledge. They're going to act on the basis of their beliefs about the world. And so, um, and so because of this added complexity of tracking beliefs, it's been sort of a major focus of studies of theory of mind, both in human development, trying to understand when do children come to have that capacity to, um, you know, track others' minds really independently of their own. Um, and also in comparative cognition, do other animals have those abilities and are there sort of some precursors of them that are shared? And so a lot of the data to date in corvids or in monkeys and apes um, showed that kind of reliably they're performing pretty well on these tasks where they need to at least track the cues that are relevant to inferring knowledge and inferring seeing. So they kind of know um, if somebody's orienting in a particular way when when an object is hiding that they they can expect the individual to search correctly for for that object that they seem to have seen it they seem to know about it um but there's really sort of for a while limited or mixed but limited evidence that they might be able to go deeper than that and track others beliefs but more recently we've tried to use kind of new tools and new ways to get at that question We've, we've been able to provide some evidence that um, maybe they do grasp beliefs, or at least they have sort of richer foundations of um, belief understanding than we previously thought. Mm -hmm. So sharing is an aspect of human sociality. Is it also present in other species, particularly primates? And if so, what do they share among themselves? Yeah. Um, sharing is something that's fundamentally human right we know for example that people have expanded across the globe we can inhabit every kind of environment and part of that is because um, we share knowledge with each other and we also share things like food right so maybe there's a really um, a year of scarcity but members of your social group are um, you know, have more food than you do, or they, they're better, more successful at hunting or catching fish or whatever. Um, and we know in some sort of indigenous populations, um, foraging populations, that, um, that sharing um, does play some role in, in helping them to kind of survive in those sorts of conditions. Uh, but there are also some kind of foundations of, um, of sharing that we see in other species as well. So um chimpanzees for example they hunt socially um they hunt monkeys actually and so a group of individuals will um kind of try to corner a monkey and um they seem to all have the same goal of trying to pursue that monkey and um if one individual catches them then um other individuals will often beg for pieces of the food and the chimp might um uh, pull off pieces and and share, for example, or we see, um, especially food sharing um, with um, with infants, um, but also um, not necessarily only infants in these kinds of species. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are other primates pro-social? Yeah. So I guess pro-sociality has different definitions. Okay. One of them might be the ability the tendency to help others, right? To do something 
with or without a cost to yourself that helps others. And this is really about the sort of action of pro-sociality. And so we know that there are a lot of um, behaviors that we see like sharing food or sharing tools or in experimental studies, um, you know, there would be tasks where somebody needs a tool or an object that's in a different room. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so Shinya Yamamoto has these studies where there are two chimps in adjacent rooms and there's like a window in between them so that they could uh, tra transfer objects. One chimp has this kind of puzzle box they need uh, and they need a tool to open it up. The other chimp has an array of different tools available to them. Um, and what you find is that the chimp who needs the tool will be clapping, trying to get the attention of the other individual or begging, sort of showing, you know, their hands. Um, and the other individual can um, consistently pass a tool. And in particular, they seem to know which tool the other individual needs. So um, they um, sort of help in this particular way by sharing these objects and in other cases by sharing food. And so we know that they're pro-social in the sense of their behavior, definitely, um, or they can be. But then sort of the other definition of pro-sociality is about having an intention to help. And this is a bit trickier to grasp. We know that they do help. We know that they do things that benefit others, sometimes at cost to themselves. But whether or not they intend it in order to help um, is a bit trickier thing to grasp. And so here there's kind of a lot of debate about whether the motivations underlying these helping behaviors are really pro-social, are they sort of altruistic, um, or might they be guided by other things? Maybe you're helping because of a benefit that you're going to get, for example, um, or even a lower level me mechanism of just being attracted to an object that somebody else is, is really fixated on. And are there ways of teasing those explanations or motivations apart in non-human animals since they don't speak and we don't really have direct access to minds, even human minds? So. Yeah, this is tricky. I think, you know, people are trying to do different experiments um, and, you know, when they do these kinds of experiments, which are, again, it's the sorts of things we've talked about before a little bit, but kind of, you know, playing games, posing problems to animals and seeing if they can solve them. Um, you know, the effort is really to try to eliminate different explanations of behavior to kind of constrain them. So, um, for example, in studies where you're trying to examine helping behavior um, or sharing behavior, um, sometimes they have different sort of apparatuses like maybe if i pull a rope it releases food to my partner okay and so the, my partner wants the food or they want the tool or whatever mm -hmm. it is um and so in order to help them i should um i should pull the rope to release the, the food or the tool to them um but then we want to know like did i do that to help them or do i did i at least do that for social reasons um or was it just that there's a rope here, it's fun to play with. So I'm playing with it. And then it just so happens that my partner benefits, right? So yeah. then you have another condition where there's no partner, but the setup is the same. And so those kinds of conditions show that the tendency to um, pull the rope is a lot lower when the partner isn't there. Um, or if the partner is there, but in another room, 
um, so that the partner won't directly benefit from, um, you know, pulling the rope, then again, the, the tendency to pull the rope is lower. So we can at least constrain our interpretations that these animals seem to be uh, motivated by the social context to some extent. But even in humans, it's a little bit tricky to isolate like altruism as the motivation for behavior because people are, are very interested in um, building a reputation um, and the benefits that come from their actions. So, um, and of course, there are kind of proximate mechanisms that it might be rewarding to, um, it feels good to help others or to, you know, to do these sort of social things. And so can we say that we're really altruistic, even if we're, if we're kind of motivated by that, that feeling of, of being a good person, you know? Um, so there's work to be done to really kind of continue, even in humans who we can talk to, to sort of um, isolate those, those um, motivations and certainly as well in non-human animals, but definitely by kind of comparing very related, closely related contexts um, where you might expect different motivations to be at play, this kind of allows us to sort of rule out one explanation or another and to try to um, more precisely understand why animals do the things that they do. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, I was mentioning language and the ability to speak, but even in, human, it, in humans, it's not really the case that we can rely that much on what people say about themselves and their own motivations, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, people are motivated often to paint a more positive picture of themselves, whether it's through language, whether it's through Instagram or whatever. Um, you know, we're always kind of thoughtful about how others are perceiving us. You know, we're using our theory of mind to kind of make inferences or predictions about how others will see us. And we're often trying to um, kind of curate uh, their experience of us or how we present ourselves, um, sometimes for deceptive purposes or sometimes just to sort of successfully build relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, not, not to be cynical here, it's not that people are necessarily dishonest, it's just that we don't really have conscious access to our own motivations most of the time and uh, I mean, it's, it also serves sort of a social function for us to say certain things that are socially acceptable, even if right. we're not consciously lying, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think, you know, we want people to like us. We want people to think that we're sort of good, um, that we're moral, that we're normal, you know, that we adhere to the correct norms of our group. And so we're often sort of intentionally behaving or, or unintentionally and unconsciously behaving in ways that sort of fit with society or that fit with the social context. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so one last topic or question. Do other primates, non-human primates, uh, also prefer helpers? Yeah, so this is a good question. There's um, some work in human infants um, which has where they kind of watch these different sorts of puppet shows. And there are these basic characters um, that either help or hinder one another. So maybe they help um, somebody's trying to climb a hill and another character either helps them by pushing them up the hill or hinders them by pushing them back down the hill or a character's trying to get into a box where there's a hidden object um, or an object that's out of reach. 
and another character either sort of helps them open the box or slams the box closed. Um, and these kinds of studies uh, have presented those sorts of social displays to, to young human infants, so under a year old, in the youngest cases, even three months old. And then they give infants a choice of who they want to interact with. Mm -hmm. And um, for six months and older, they, the choice is by reaching. So they can reach to touch one of the puppets or the other one, um, or the youngest infants, they don't really reach yet. So it's just kind of where do they look? Which character are they more interested in watching further? Um, and those studies seem to show, at least in, um, in a variety of um, Western societies, that children show a preference for helpful individuals. Um, and, you know, there's uh, work that's sort of trying to broaden and study this across a, a more diverse array of cultural mm -hmm. contexts to see, um, you know, whether this seems to be the case, regardless of your, um, the norms of your culture. Um, but the idea is that potentially from a very young age, children are already sort of adapted to evaluate those around them and to identify individuals that are more pro-social or helpful, um, which you can imagine um, is potentially useful and to, to sort of decode society, but also just for finding people who are more likely to help you and not harm you. And, um, you know, potentially children in vulnerable contexts can benefit from this kind of ability. And so there's also been an interest in understanding whether these sort of early emerging motivations might be evolutionarily ancient, they might be shared across different species. And the data are a bit mixed. So we see in primates some cases where they observe similar displays, like um, humans are trying to get an object out of a container um, and are either helped or hindered by another individual um, or um, or they observe somebody trying to um, get food and um, either you know one character shares food or another character steals food away or steals an object away um, and we see in some species and in some experiments evidence that they do seem to have this sort of pro-social preference, especially when it seems to be functional for them. So there's some studies with um, with great apes where they could they saw a human who um, wanted food, or yeah, and and the helper would sort of deliver food to them, um, and the hinderer would sort of steal the food away. And then when um, the apes had the choice, who do they want to approach? Do they want to approach um, the individual who previously delivered food to somebody else or the one who didn't? They um, are often approaching the individual who, who previously shared food with someone else. So in this kind of case where a particular behavior is exactly the behavior that they want the individual to perform, there is some evidence that they also show this sort of pro-social preference. But in, in uh, further experiments where we wanted to know, is it just that they're kind of tracking, like this individual gives out food, so I'm gonna just approach that individual because I want food, or are they really tracking that this individual is nice, this individual across different contexts is showing a disposition to help others. Um, and so we did some studies with bonobos where they had, um, 
where they were fairly similar. But what the bonobos saw, for example, was um, a human who was playing with a toy um, and throwing this toy up in the air and the toy falls out of reach. And the helper uh, obtains the toy and tries to return it to um, this sort of main character. But the hinderer aggressively snatches it away and steals it, right? So the actions are similar um, to the ones I described before, but they don't have anything to do with food. They're just helping or hindering in one particular way. And then, and you know, the bonobo is in, in a room, you know, there's mesh between the bonobo and the people so that they can observe this display. And then um, the helper and the hinderer are given a small piece of food and they each approach at the same time. And so the bonobo has the choice, do I want to go interact with the helper or the hinderer? And across a bunch of different studies, we found that they tended actually to have a bias, not for the helper, but instead for the hinderer. They seem to like the jerk in this particular context. So that sort of told us that, um, you know, they, the tendency to prefer helpers, which we see in human infants, it might not be sort of as uh, robust and generalizable in non-human primates. Um, but we also wanted to know why are they doing that? And so we did some further manipulations and they also showed a preference for approaching an individual who appeared to be dominant um, mm. in other contexts too. And so what we're thinking here is that um, they evaluate others probably based on a number of different um, traits or behaviors or tendencies, uh, but dominance is likely to be a powerful one. So perhaps in the context where you know, you just need to learn that somebody gives out food and um, and I want food. So that's the obvious person to approach. Um, they can kind of remember those previous actions. But um, if they're sort of going more off of disposition, then dominance might be a stronger factor in motivating their choice. Because, you know, even bonobos who are sort of often seen as um, more uh, gregarious or um, or sort of less aggressive than chimpanzees, you know, dominance is also important in their societies too. And so it makes sense that they're kind of attracted to more dominant individuals. But I guess I would say that sort of further work is really needed to try and understand, um, you know, the context in which one motivation drives their behavior over another and whether there are meaningful species differences across non-human primates or between humans and non-human primates in terms of these sorts of motivations. Mm -hmm. So whether a particular species or group contextual, contextually or otherwise tends to prefer helpers or hinderers, I mean, regardless of that, uh, the ones they prefer tend to get some social benefits, right? Yeah, I think in this case, there are potential motivations for either, right? You could, um, if you prefer helpers, you might have the benefit of being... Um, around nice individuals who are more likely to sort of come through, um, whether that means sharing food in the future, whether that means supporting you when you're attacked by another member of your group or whatnot. But on the other side, um, you know, dominance also is, is um, a powerful factor in determining whether somebody's help is actually going to be useful. So, um, you know, a more dominant individual has more power in your society um, to enact help, particularly, for example, if, if you've been attacked by another individual and your friend is a, a really dominant individual, then their intervention is 
probably going to successfully uh, deter your attacker. Um, but if your friend is a really weak individual, then they might not mm -hmm. have the capacity to actually help you in that kind of context. So there are different factors that might be relevant in sort of choosing the person or, or in the case of animals, the, um, the social partner who's going to be most valuable in, in various contexts. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, Dr. Krupenia, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Sure. So, um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my uh, signature is it's at Chris Krupenia, so C-H-R-I-S-K-R-U-P-E-N-Y-E. -E. Um, you can also find me by Googling my name. Um, I have a website at Weebly and at Johns Hopkins. Um, but I think Twitter is probably the most sort of accessible way to, to learn about our sort of ongoing discoveries and, um, you know, what's going on in the field of, of animal cognition. Okay, great. I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. I've had a blast. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett Perga, Larson, Laguerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Greg Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alec, Jonathan Vissel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolfkin, Tim Hollis, Enrique Lenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Nieberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Spinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Ugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dimitri Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, and Max Belby. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardis France, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.